right, guys, welcome to episode five of the Journeyman Firefighter Podcast. I'm Andrew Zisk. Uh, with me today is Grant Schwalbe, and uh, our guest from Chicago Squad Company number five is Larry McCormack. Uh, before we get started today, I uh, wanted to go over a few things. In the past couple of weeks, we've had a couple line of duty deaths throughout the country. Uh, we want to recognize our brothers in Clinton, Iowa. Uh, unfortunately, lost Lieutenant Eric Hosett. Uh, was lost in a grain silo uh, explosion about a week ago. One of their firefighters currently, Adam Kane, is currently in critical but stable condition, last that I read out of the uh, Des Moines uh, Register. And also out of the FDNY of, from Ladder Company 170, uh, Stephen Pollard uh, lost his life trying to get over the overpass uh, to reach a couple folks who were involved in a vehicle accident. We're going to recognize them before we get started today um, and honor them and uh, realize the dangers that we face. And then uh, so in today's episode, we're going to let Grant hit it off here in a minute. We'll have Larry McCormack. He's from Chicago Squad Company number five. and talk all things search uh, and go over some of the Chicago Squad Company concept and kind of let the conversation roll from there. Go ahead, Grant. So, Larry, uh, I, I had the, the fortunate uh, ability to, to run into you, and we got to teach last year at FDIC together. We had a mutual friend and Mike Champo. Um, and uh, you just really, uh, your depth and knowledge and humbleness and everything just, just kind of blew me away. Uh, can you, how did you get to be a fireman, or kind of tell us your story and your journey to, to, to be where you're at now? Uh, well, I've been real blessed, I guess, to be around uh, some of the best in the business. And, and growing up, uh, one of uh, the uh, guys that kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, was actually my sister's softball coach. Um, and I went to school with his oldest daughter, a guy named Tommy Shervino, was a fireman here in the south suburbs of uh, the city of Chicago. And uh, was kind of a mentor for me uh, over the course of my life. and. Um, when I uh, got out of high school, I got into the carpenters union and I knew, you know, that that wasn't, uh, I, I didn't feel like I wanted to make a career of that and started looking at the fire service. Um, I don't know why I gravitated towards it. I guess, uh, you know, I knew a carpenter's life uh, was going to be uh, pretty, pretty tough. And um, uh, Tommy kind of steered me towards taking a test for uh, Oaklawn Fire Department, again, South Suburb. He was a, a training chief at the time. I took the test and uh, was lucky enough to get hired there. And uh, um, uh, after uh, going through the uh, fire academy there, Tommy went back to shift, and he was my captain uh, on the on the squad there in the south suburbs of Oakland. So I guess if anybody um, helped kind of steer uh, my ship, it was it was uh, Tom Shervino from there. Uh, I guess I didn't know how much I was going to like it until uh, my very first day, actually, out of academy. I lined up at muster and uh, we were doing roll call and uh, at that house, they had an ambulance, uh, an engine and the squad. And I was standing there roll call and, and uh, the chief said, okay, well, you know, you're going to be on the squad today. I said, great. Okay. Which one is that? You know, okay, there it is. I'm standing there with my gear and we got to run uh, roll call was at seven, seven Oh four. We're going to uh, uh, a still in box, like basically all hands are, you know, uh, a step up from uh, uh, basically an extra alarm. Uh, in a in a uh, neighboring suburb, and we went there, and it went to a second alarm, and and uh, you know got to get dirty, break stuff, and swear, you know everything your mom told you you couldn't do when you were a kid, and I and I it just it just planted a seed in me. I loved it, you know, and um, right out of the gate. So, uh, so I guess uh, I had taken the test for the city of Chicago Fire Department in 
95, and I had got hired in that south suburb there in uh, 96. So I had waited for the city of Chicago Fire Department to call me because I knew, you know, it was a working middle class neighborhood. Uh, the fire duty just, you know, wasn't uh, kind of what, uh, you know, I wanted. Uh, I wanted to do a little bit more. And, um, you know, we had trained all the time and everything. But we just, you know, I wasn't, we were we just weren't doing what I wanted to do as far as uh, the fire, fire load or whatnot. So I was kind of hoping the city of Chicago was going to call. Again, I took the test in 95, and it just didn't look like it was going to happen. So FDNY ran a test in 99 or 2000. I went out there. I took it. I didn't expect to do well, but I did. Uh, did really well on the written and um, kind of treated it like a vacation. Went out there with um, my girlfriend at the time. It was my wife, Jill. And, uh, you know, I took the test, and then we you know, went and saw a show on Broadway and hung out in New York. It was a pretty awesome experience. Uh, got the test results back. Again, I did pretty well, you know. Uh, so they invited me out to take the physical. I went back out. I did that. And just going through the process, um, I landed on the list at 3108. And I think they posted that list in uh, maybe late 2000. And, of course, 9-11 happened. So I got called. Um, and I headed out there 2003 and was lucky enough to uh, get assigned to Ladder Company 26 up in Harlem at the fire factory. And uh, I, I wasn't there very long. I had about a cup of coffee there, but I bought a home. I lived upstate New York and uh, was settling in and going to start a family and everything. And then I finally got the letter from the 95 test uh, from Chicago, and that was 2006. So packed everything up, sold the house and moved back to Chicago. And I, I started there. I was assigned to uh, a truck company in a neighborhood called Inglewood uh, on the south side of Chicago, uh, Truck 20. Um, I was there about two years, and I was invited to go on a 90-day detail that lasted uh, nine years at uh, Squad 5. And uh, I was recently assigned maybe two years ago. So I've been at the squad there for uh, since uh, like June of 2008. Um, uh, so in my travels, I've been really blessed to be around some of the best in the business, some of the most humble men you'd ever meet. You know, if you didn't know they were firemen, you'd think they were concrete guys or plumbers or whatever, but just just absolute uh, gentlemen's firemen. And, um, you know, hopefully some of it rubbed off on me, you know. So Can you, can you talk a little bit about Chicago and what a squad does for those that don't know? Sure. So a squad here uh, – in the Midwest, I can't speak for Milwaukee or Gary or anything like that, um, but I can say in the city of Chicago, a squad is more or less treated like a, um, a rescue company uh, out on the East Coast, like a FDNY rescue. So we're a two-piece unit. We have a box uh, or, you know, um, in the front, uh, we, we're a two-piece. The front rig is a box again, and then we have a, a snorkel apparatus, which um, Commissioner Quinn back in the 50s actually is a originated here um i know there's other uh, i know philly has snorkels memphis and maybe some other bigger bigger towns but we still uh we still run a two-piece uh box and snorkel unit um in the past uh um years and years ago the snorkel was uh solely the the only unit but right now um since 1980 anyway we've we've run that two-piece it's a box snorkel six members including the officer so five firemen and the officer and basically what we do more or less is um uh, on the fire ground just kind of fill in the gap so when you pull up read the building or ask the chief and see what they need done and we're 
more or less we're real flexible in our positioning so typically you know we might lead out but more or less we operate like a truck company would so we kind of support uh, the nozzle team and go in and more or less what we do uh, what we try to accomplish our I guess our number one mission is search uh, search and rescue and then all the other um, you know truck company functions after that you know pulling ceiling and and uh, trimming out doors and windows and stuff like that ventilation uh, rooftop and otherwise so that's kind of how we how we work it here in Chicago more or less so to to that uh, to speak to that you um, taught with us on the uh, search class a hot class for FDIC and and just blown away uh, with your knowledge and, and basically you, you hit it and you said, you know, you're putting in the sets and reps to see what works and what doesn't. And it's something I, uh, I think about often. Do you say you screwed up more stuff than you got right? And uh, if, if you did something good, it might've been by accident. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, I, again, I, I guess uh, I've been real lucky in that um, I have had the opportunity to make, a lot of mistakes and I've, I've, I've always said that if I do something right the first time it was an accident I have to do it wrong to kind of realize uh, you know why we're supposed to do it the right way if that makes sense and then I try not to repeat those mistakes so I I have to learn the hard way uh, I can't read something in a book and then kind of uh, digest it and make it happen I have to do it with my hands and practice it over and over so like you said Grant it's, it's kind of like reps and sets and um, having that opportunity to get out there and actually and operate on the fire ground for real is uh i've been real blessed with with uh you know uh, i guess you know the opportunity to do that so um and and being being uh able to to make those mistakes and realize you know again why why we do things certain ways um uh has been a real blessing i guess in my in my travels like i said if if i if i did something right the first time uh, you know, it's probably by, by accident. I've almost got to do it wrong and go, okay, yeah, that's, you know what, we don't do it this way. And this is why now I know, you know, firsthand. So, so with, with that being said, search kind of, uh, across the country has a little bit different take. What, how, if you guys are assigned search, what, what's that look like for your squad? So the four members, uh, we ride four members up front in the box and then two members in the back in the snorkel. Typically what happens is the four members up front in the box will go with the, uh, the three firemen and the officer go in the front door or usually where the first line is let out. They go in, they chase the line and then operate either uh, in the fire area or, or the floor above. The members that ride in the back rig uh, usually adjust the rear of the building and make sure that's opened up opposite the nozzle team and then make searches, um, you know, the path of egress a lot of times is, is out that back porch and uh, we begin our searches there. So we have two teams of uh, firefighters going in both the front and the back of the building, addressing uh, you know both both sides, and beginning our searches from there. Usually that's that how that's how it goes. Of course, we could walk up to the scene and the chiefs could say, hey, you know what, we need a second line or a, we need a line on the floor above. The fire's extended, and then we might make a stretch too. So it's kind of it's real flexible where where our engines, of course, and trucks. Our discipline and positioning, uh, you know, clearly uh, their jobs are, you know, written in black and white. This is what you do if you're the first truck or the second truck, first engine, second engine. But for us, we kind of show up and, um, like I said earlier, it's just kind of fill in the gaps for the chief. So 
And if we if he doesn't have any um, orders, again, we 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 kind of just follow that first line in the front door, and then go to the back, go opposite the hand line, and begin our searches there. If you're in the back rig, so that's pretty much how it goes. With the four people going in, are you splitting in teams of two? Are you guys working alone? How do you divide up the, the search tasks amongst those four guys? Uh, usually teams of two. So the officer would take um, a, a member, and then the other two members would um, uh, begin their searches uh, with each other. Sometimes, uh, depending on the officer, they may send uh, one of the members to the roof. On my, on my shift, uh, my officer likes us to address uh, rooftop ventilation. So if you're driving uh, the box uh, on my shift, the first platoon, or, uh, we would address uh, vertical ventilation. So usually we would get on the handy talkie and just ask the first two truck if they need help up there or climb the ladder, take a peek. And uh, if they need a hand, uh, go and, again, address uh, vertical ventilation. If not, the guy driving the box would then uh, go in the front door with, with, um, with, the other, with the officer and the other two members. So it's, it's real flexible, almost, um, you know, fires are very similar, but they're all different. So going there, listening to the first two size up, um, it'll give you a kind of an idea of, um, you know, what tools to bring uh, predicated on the building instruction. And then, uh, you know, you'd walk up to the building and then kind of uh, figure out, you know, wh who needs help. And uh, that's, that's, that's where we get plugged in usually. That's kind of how it works. So it's very very flexible you almost don't know you kind of have a clue what you're going to do on your way there but it could change like right now you walk up and the chief says hey listen put your tools down again we we walk up to the building more or less with you know pipe bowls halgans axes stuff like that truck tools typically uh and then you know again the chief might say hey you know what set those down we need we need a line stretch to the second floor so you never know what you're going to get to get there hey larry uh just want to hit out you talked about vertical ventilation i know it's depending on where you are whether you're in the east coast or if you're in la sending all 26 guys to the roof uh i know it can be in, kind of be a uh a contentious issue with some folks talk about the importance at least for you guys in vertical ventilation and, and give us some of your experiences uh you know some folks are either either for it or against it it seems like right now um you know just looking at a few youtube videos that i've seen you guys get up there pretty quick um, on the peak roofs and I have no issues operating on that. Uh, just give me your thoughts and your experiences. Well, we, we make every roof. So if, if, the, if there's a line getting stretched, we're probably, you know, unless it's a small kitchen fire or something like that and the chief asks us to hold it, uh, we're going to open it up. Um, usually we're operating on buildings that could be anywhere that are typically built, uh, you know, right around World War II or could even be up to 100 years old. So they're typically pretty stout, and uh, uh, you know it, we we don't we do have it in my area. I work in a pretty urban area of Chicago. We cover um, the South Side. Um, we do have lightweight construction, but not a ton of it. Uh, we do have steeper peaked roofs because uh, clearly you know we get a fair amount of snow, and uh, our roofs are usually like an 812 to up to like a 1412 pitch. So they're not, you know, walkable. Um, but our first two truck will send two members. The second truck usually sends one member. And then again, the squad kind of will take a peek. Do we need help up there or not? If it's a peak group. Um, our trucks were given chainsaws about, boy, 
maybe five years ago now. So all our uh, truck companies now have uh, um, still chainsaws. So we're going up there now where we used to get up on the peak, uh, get away from the aerial apparatus parked in the front, and then just start kind of more or less kind of chopping holes between joist bays. Uh, it was, uh, wasn't real pretty, but you would get a nice uh, hole, you know, uh, square footage-wise. Um, you know, it wasn't a four-by-four four hole because it's almost impossible to do on a 14-12 roof. You just can't do that, um, like the book says. But we would bust holes between rafter bays and then punch the ceiling in on a peak roof and then work your way back to the main, uh, to the aerial apparatus. Our second two trucks responsible for throwing a ladder in the rear of the building in case you can't get back to that. The, the aerial in the front, you could go to the rear of the building. Uh, you know, usually there's a 35 back there and a roof ladder. You could then climb down if you can't to get back to the front. So our second truck's responsible for that means of escape, uh, escape for, for the members operating on the roof. Um, so that's what we used to do. But with the, um, with the advent of the chainsaw, when, when we got chainsaws in Chicago, now our members are going up with roof ladders and trying more or less on a peak roof to get um, that area that's over the occupied space, that small like triangle. Um, sometimes there's a scuttle hole, sometimes not because there's not a lot of room up there to store stuff. If you can get over that void space there and then get between the rafter bays, almost like a, almost like a trench cut from the peak down to the gutter, uh, then that space between that void at the top and then the knee wall, you get the occupied space and then try to get over that knee wall too because a lower floor fire, a kitchen fire is going to extend up into that knee wall, takes possession of that knee wall quickly and spreads, you know, horizontally almost as fast as it goes vertically up to the top. So right. if you can get over the void space at the top of a peak group, then the occupied space where our members are, but more importantly, our victims, potential victims are, and then over that knee wall, you can really make it a whole lot easier for that engine company to get up to that second floor and, you know, make that turn and get after, uh, get after that fire. So, you know, in Chicago, again, we open, um, we, you know, we, we address the roof on every fire, uh, whether it's a peak or flat roof, um, whether or not we open kind of is predicated on the fire condition, but we send at least, uh, the first two, two members from the first two truck company address the roof on, on every fire. So, um, we're pretty adamant about that. Um, I believe it works, and uh, to be honest with you, I'm 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 a fan. Uh, I've been in fires where you know it opening that roof makes a tremendous difference in the uh, heat and smoke condition in that occupied space where we're operating. So, and again, it and it also lets uh, heat and smoke out of those voids that may or may not be open yet, and we're not uh, until they're open. We can't even put water on them. But if you can open them up. That that heat and smoke's got to go somewhere. If you can vertically ventilate, uh, it, it just makes it a whole lot easier for everybody that's up on that second floor. Yeah, no, I I agree. Um, I grew up in the Northeast and, and Grant's from Ohio. I think that's where you saw the the still the big basis of folks doing vertical ventilation. And I think a lot of it and you hit on it was based on the building construction. I, I got to assume majority of your single family homes are balloon frame. Um, not a lot of that uh, new lightweight construction, so I can see where uh, you know it would make sense. Now, when you guys are going out making those cuts, you said something about a triangle cutter. Some of you guys are, are they trying to do the nice four by four hole, or are they just getting up there and getting whatever they can get done and getting off? 
So, you know, and I, kiddingly, I say, you know, uh, you know, I know the book says it's a great test question. You know, they want a four by four hole on a roof, sure. uh, you know, 16 square feet. And that's great. That's that's awesome for a lieutenant's exam or whatever. But it's really, you know, whoever wrote that uh, probably didn't open a lot of roofs because in the truck or squad or support, whatever you want to call it across the country, you know, we're all there to support the nozzleman. But, uh, you know, making a four by four hole puts a whole lot of joists or rafters into that hole. And we, I, you know, I like to say we work opposite the carpenter. So we take apart what the carpenter put together. When you make a four by four hole, you have a lot of joists. You have a lot of fasteners, whether it's a screw or typically more times than not a nail that you have to pull and you're, you're working against. So the less rafters or joists you have in that space, maybe the better. So it may not be a four by four hole, but it may be, may be a two by eight hole and if you're running parallel to those load-bearing members, whether it's a joist or rafter, you know you, you have a whole lot less of them in in that in that space that you got to that you got to pull up that one by or that plywood. So um, at the end of the day, the square footage of the hole is probably comparable. A small hole is better than no hole, uh, you know. But um, yeah, the whole four by four principle uh, on a flat roof certainly would work here. You know, I like what New York does with the coffin cut. Uh, it's pretty similar here. That's pretty much what we do here, more or less. You know, maybe like a three by seven or or, or whatever. Uh, we don't certainly don't put a ruler out or anything like that. But um, the idea is to get a hole quickly and then expand that hole. One one big hole is better than multiple holes. Um, but uh, you know, as far as a peaked roof is concerned, you just you can't safely operate in a snow condition or whether it's, it could be summer. You, you, you just can't reach with a chainsaw four feet to make a four by four hole. And then you got to pull that. So you can't louver a four by four hole. You have too many rafters in it or joists. So you can't louver that. So it's not like you can, I like to work, if I'm on a peaked roof, if I'm on a roof ladder, I like to work towards the building, not away from it. And what I mean by that is I don't like to pull uh, um, the finished building material. I don't like to pull the, the uh, plywood or the one by if I'm on a peak roof, because you clearly you could lose your balance. I'd rather work into the building. So I'd rather make a long narrow cut parallel to the load bearing member, the brother again is, is rafter or joist, and then beat that in or louver it, like make a louver cut because mm -hmm. your, your body weight is going towards the building. So you're not uh, working against the fastener pulling it because energy doesn't disappear. If I'm, if I'm working, trying to pull something, if I'm trying to loosen a, uh, a one by or, or some plywood and I'm on a peak roof, um, once that fastener lets go, um, whatever effort you're putting into that, uh, you know, gets transferred into you and then, you know, you could lose your balance and clearly, you know, uh, you know, slip off the ladder, slip off the roof. So again, I, I'd rather than a four by four hole, I like to make longer, narrower cuts and have less, I guess the, you know, the older you get, you, you don't want to work, you want to work a little smarter than harder. Um, you know, it's so it's a lot. Like I said, it's a lot easier to to uh, limit the number of fasteners you're you're working against. I guess you know. You said you did have you do have some areas now with the lightweight uh, construction going in. How does that change your your roof ops? Um. Well, you know what? Uh, by us, it's you can tell by the newer construction, and even in urban ghetto areas. We do have some lightweight construction, but you can kind of tell walking up to a building like that. Usually uh, here, I can only speak for Chicago, um, 
but a lightweight, you know, if I look at a building and it's a four or five twelve, or it looks like a walkable roof and it's a newer building, that's a potential truss. Um, any kind of newer building, anything built, I guess, um, trusses, uh, I, I, I'd be, it'd be a bold faced lie if I said I knew, but I think trusses kind of started out in California. They worked their way here. Uh, anything built after, uh, the 70s here in Chicago could potentially be lightweight construction. Um, but usually, at least here uh, in Chicago, um, it would be a, more of a walkable pitch. So it would be a, a roof that clearly, as you pull up, you could look at and go, you know, it, you know, if there's a snow condition, it's different. But it's clearly a walkable roof. That's a potential, um, you know, it could potentially be rafters. If there's a louvered uh, gable vent, you know, uh, those trusses have to breathe. If there's a gable vent that's pronounced like a bigger than normal looking gable vent, I would consider again, um, you know, they could potentially be uh, lightweight trusses. We don't have a lot of attached garages, but I, you know, again, I worked in the, in the suburbs uh, here around Chicago as well. And a lot of times when the contractor or the homeowner runs out of money, they don't finish their garage ceiling. So it's like the last thing they sheetrock or drywall. So if you have an attached garage one way, you know, if you have an upper floor fire, bedroom fire uh, in the second story, or even a kitchen fire in a newer building, if you can get into the garage or, or even if it's uninvolved, um, get in the garage and take a peek or even pull down the stairs in the attached garage. If, clearly, if there's trusses above that attached garage that's uninvolved, there would be trusses throughout the building. So that's a, that's a real indication. Or of course, if it's in your still district and you're driving around, you see the you know, you see them uh, building, you know, putting it together, you, you know, you could kind of put that in your, in your Rolodex for, for later that, you know, clearly this is lightweight construction. So, um, but by us, again, if it's a newer building, I just, uh, you know, anything after 1970, I would kind of look at it like a, low, a, a lower pitch roof that potentially, yeah, clearly this could be lightweight construction. You know, where's the fire been? Where is it at? Where is it going? Is it potentially under the roof? Um, those are all things you consider as you, as you, you know, as you're climbing, as you're hitting that parking brake on the, on the truck. So, um, we do have it in urban areas. We have had fires in lightweight buildings, um, uh, you know, that, that, that were built and then sat vacant for years. And, um, you know, uh, we have had fire in, in them. We've been real lucky that we haven't had anybody get hurt, uh, at least in recent memory, um, uh, that I'm aware of anyway, uh, because it was lightweight construction. So we've been lucky in that regard. So we kind of hit fire behavior and ventilation a little bit. And I know we'd spoken before about uh, guys doing their searches and, and uh, opening up a window in a room to, to give yourself some orientation. Can you speak to that? Because I think sometimes when we, we get into the UL study, we've got people so freaked out about making any opening um, that we, we're kind of missing missing some stuff can you talk about that sure you know what um you know i i haven't really read the study i i kind of know you know i kind of know what what i know you know and i've been and i don't speak for chicago or new york or any anything else just i can only speak from my experience what i've been exposed to and uh you know the members i've been around that have been kind enough to pass stuff on to me um there, there. I clearly, there's. You know, at the end of the day, what it boils down to is is um, high pressure to low pressure. So any opening you make in a building, that high pressure, that bottled up uh, heat and smoke, it's got to go somewhere. So as we begin to put holes in buildings, um, 
that clearly, you know, could spread fire. And truthfully, uh, not proud of this, but, you know, um, I have been to fires that, that have gotten worse because of undisciplined ventilation. Um, you know, guys running around the building, putting holes in buildings that, uh, that, you know, clearly, um, don't belong there, at least at that point in the fire. And what I mean by that is, um, New York is a great example. They're very disciplined with their uh, horizontal ventilation, very disciplined. Um, uh, at least when I was there, and again, I only had a cup of coffee there. I was there less than two years. But uh, their outside vent uh, guy that goes opposite the hand line, they actually get on the handy talkie and ask for permission to open a window. So they don't just go up there and start breaking glass. They're very disciplined in their positioning. They need... Um, you know, they need to ask the first new truck company officer, you know, is it, you know, can, can we, can we get in yet? And, and that, that uh, truck company officer will let them know, yes, that the hand line's in position, or we've already knocked down the fire, go ahead and make holes, or no, we're not at the seat of the fire yet, hold off, and you have to sit there, and, 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 and it kind of goes against uh, our nature, but you have to sit there and wait, and uh, until that hand line's in position to put water on the fire. So, um you know, as we begin to make holes in in buildings, that fire is obviously gonna 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 travel there. So, as I'm making searches, uh, especially if I'm above the fire, I'm very leery about uh, opening making openings because I'm you're oh, basically giving that fire permission to come to you or where wherever you're operating if you're if you're breaking or at a window that's open. So uh, unless you close the door or something like that. So. Um, you know, I get on the radio and I'll ask, I'll ask the engine, hey, do you have water in the fire yet? If they say no, I have to make uh, whatever conditions are present, I have to operate in those conditions. If they say, yeah, we got the fire knocked down, well, that's different. So myself, uh, even in urban areas, uh, certainly we still have single pane glass with uh, the sash weights and, you know, the old school 100-year-old windows. But we also have, you know, a lot of those windows have been replaced because they're clearly not, you know, um, you know economically feasible to to have those windows so even in urban areas we have you know double hung windows you know your your um you know the windows you get at menards or home depot or whatever replacement windows so those windows usually the top and bottom sash operate and uh you know i as opposed to breaking them uh i like to take them out so even with a gloved hand i take uh usually my tool complement is a halgen tool and depending on the type of building construction, a story and a half frame, I usually bring a six foot pipe pole, anything else, anything other than that, it's seven or eight footer, typically seven. Um, but you could take the pick of the halogen, and if you don't know how those windows operate, you could go take a look at them at any any hardware store, or at, like it says, Home Depot, Menards, whatever, look at their displays. But, you know, there's two tabs. Usually, if you lift the bottom sash a little bit, there's two tabs. You can pull the window towards you and then cock it at a 45, start to put it at a 45, and it'll pop out. So as opposed to breaking that glass and, you know, working really hard, busting your ass to, 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 to make that opening, it's, it's easier to just open those windows like a gentleman. And you can take the pick of the halogen, like I said, even with your oven mitts on, and get that one corner going. I'm right-handed, so I get that right-handed side going. Once you get a little bit of a gap, you can get your hand in that space and pop those windows. Pull the bottom sash or the top sash down, just rip it towards you, you know, pop it at a 45, set that glass down. And then that makes the window uh, what became, what well, was a window, it's now a door. So if you've got a bail, you can get out if you have to. 
um, to break the glass. A lot of times I, you know, I've seen in my travels, guys will break the bottom uh, um, sash and then the top sash and they leave that mullion in the middle. And uh, that's clearly, uh, that could impede your egress uh, if in an emergency. So I just feel like you can work, you work, uh, you know, I can open up four of those, five of those windows like a gentleman and make those windows a door before somebody can beat their brains out trying to take out that window working harder than they need to, if that makes any sense. So, but that making that window a door, it affords you the opportunity again, if they have water and fire, make that opening. It gives you the opportunity to poke your head out and make sure you are where you think you are in that building. You know, it's, uh, I often joke, if there's an angled wall in a building, you know, it's like an angled street when you're driving the rig, it just throws me off. So I can get, you know, anyone can get spun around pretty quick. If, you know, if you hit an angled wall for whatever reason, uh, my orientation is, you know, usually pretty good. I hit an angled wall, I'm, I'm, I'm lost. So I take that opportunity uh, as I make that, that window a door, uh, try to get a little bit of a lift, poke your head out and make sure, you know, if you think you're in the front, make sure you're in the front. You know, there's been, you know, I'd be, it'd be a bold-faced lie if I didn't say, you know, more times uh, than I care to admit, I've poked my head out and thought, where I was wasn't exactly where I was. I might have been in the same room. I knew I was in the right room, but maybe I was on on the you know the four or the D as opposed to the front. You know, if that makes any sense. Yeah, take that opportunity. Make sure you're make sure you're at where you think you are. Uh, you know, it only takes a second, and certainly uh, can save a lot of a lot of time. Now, we also talked about. Um you know, using your pike pole or your hook to check to see where fire is at. Um, and, and maybe the searches aren't completely done. Speak to that a little bit. You had a couple of good tips uh, on where to do that. Well, you know, it depends on, again, uh, you know, where the fire has been, where it's at and where it's going. So if, if I think the fire may be present over our heads and I'm searching up above um, the hand line or I'm above the fire, uh, you know, it's, if you're going to make a hole, you want to be, if, if something is going on above you that uh, is not so good, you want to be able to compartmentize it. So as opposed to getting up to that second floor and pulling the ceiling in the hallway, uh, which is going to expose all the members operating in that area, maybe it's a better idea to, to try to find a closet. Um, you know, if it's a basement fire and you're on the first floor, maybe it's the kitchen pantry or even the bathroom. Uh, and get just poke a little hole and then maybe not the hook under your tool, but but the blunt end of the tool and just poke that in the ceiling and see what's going on. Clearly, if the building's on fire, I expect it to be smoke. But, um, you know, if it's lazy smoke, maybe the fire's not in that space. But if the smoke is pushing out with edges or it's whistling out of that 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 joist bay, well, then, you know, the fire's probably present. And, uh, you know, we may not want to start just pulling that ceiling down until we have a hand line present. So that might be a time that, you know, you call for, for a second line to come up to where you're operating. Um, but yeah, so if you're, if you're in that hallway closet, uh, or again, even, even the bathroom, if you pull that, you know, if you poke a little hole in there and the fire comes ripping down, you want to be able to compartmentize that. So if it's a, like I said, a closet or something like that, you could close that door. And, you know, if we need to, if we have to, get back down to, uh, you know, an area of, of safety, get down to a lower floor, we can do that. If I pull a big hole in a ceiling at the top of the stairs and then we advance uh, towards uh, where the seat of the fire was under us and the fire is now showing 
uh, or you know, we, we can't operate in that area anymore, it's too hot, whatever, we made our searches, we're going to retreat, and now fire is blowing down out of that hole over the top of the staircase where we came up, now we need a plan B, and that's, that's, not, that's not always uh, a good idea. So you, know, you wanna be kinda careful if you don't have a handline present, poking holes in buildings. Um, it's, it's real important with um, story and a half frames, two and a half story frames, we do a fair amount of that. When you start poking around knee walls with a lower floor fire, you can really get yourself jammed up because if the fire takes possession of that knee wall, it spreads horizontally because that's typically, you know, like this time of year, this is where, that's where all your summer clothes would be here, you know, in Chicago. Um, you know, in the summer, that's where all your Christmas stuff is and your winter coats and everything else. Um, so there's boxes and boxes of stuff that will burn in those knee walls. So the fire takes possession of that. Uh, some of the hottest fires I've been to have been in those type of buildings because with, with a half story, uh, it's a confined space. So the walls are pushed in because uh, the angle of the roof, you have those that, that presence, that void or that knee wall. So it pushes the load-bearing walls in, and then the ceilings on those buildings are usually a little bit shorter as well as opposed to like a two or three, whatever, four-story flat roof. Um, so the ceilings are a little bit lower as well. So the fire takes possession of that knee walls, that pipe gets up to the, to that, uh, that floor, uh, that top floor. And because it's in a void, you can't directly put water on, on that fire. So those, those fires get really, really hot, really, really quick. Um, and if you get up there and you're searching, up, uh, in front of the hand line or the hand lines below you. You start poking holes in these knee walls as you're going away from that staircase or that ladder you came in from the window. If the fire takes possession of that knee wall, now all those holes you put in that knee wall, you could potentially have fire showing. You won't be able to get back to however you got to that second floor, I guess is what I'm saying. So you have to be very careful with a lower floor fire in a half story searching above a fire because, again, um, you know, if, if I get to the top of the stairs and I get to that where I know that void is, that knee wall, I, I'll usually take the pick of my halogen and just get a pinhole size hole, very small. And again, if, clearly there's gonna be smoke. Is it lazy smoke or is it whistling out of there or is there fire in there? So I don't, you know, you don't wanna commit yourself any further than you need to uh, um, or what's safe um, unless, you know, you have the presence of a hand line. So it gives you a real good read. Uh, if the, the, the sooner you can get, uh, some idea what's going on in those void spaces around you. You know, I've, I've, I, I say it all the time. I'm not worried about the, 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 the fire that's on the cover of Firehouse Magazine. You know, the fire that's showing out of three windows on that second floor. Because usually it's, you know, you, you go to the top, you know, go to the top of the stairs, take a right, take another right and push it out those front windows. It's, those are easy. It's the, it's the fires that you, you know, that you don't know where it's at or you can't get a really good read or the fires that are in those voids that you can't directly put water on and knock that fire down right now. Those are the fires I worry about. And those are, you know, some of the hottest ones I've been to. So uh, you just got to be real. You know, I, I mean, I've often said, um, clearly, I think throughout the fire service, if we had a better handle uh, on building construction and fire behavior or be able to undress a building, be able to hit the parking brake, look at the building and see it naked, see it, see the skeleton of that building, know where those voids are. Um, you know, I, I think we, we could certainly uh, use a better understanding of that throughout the fire service. Uh, just building instruction, fire behavior, you know, guys are putting themselves in positions or making holes in voids that now, uh, 
they have fire, they get turned around or they can't get back to the stairs, that's when we run into problems. That's when we're jumping out of windows, that's when we're calling maydays, that's when we're getting lost. Um, it's the fire in the voids that I'm more concerned about or more worried about than the fire that's showing out of, out of four or five windows. I mean, that's, like I said, those are easy. You know where the fire's at, so just go put water on it. So, um, yeah, I think, again, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but I think we could all probably use a little brushing up on uh, building instruction. That's for sure. Larry, do you, if you guys see a lightweight truss, newer construction, is your roof ops changing it in any way? You kind of talked about how you identify it, but are you guys still going to the roof? Or are you not going to the roof? Are you going to go in if a, there's a different window of time or, or what's that look like? Um, you know, again, it, it, it all has to do with uh, what, you know, it's all game day stuff for me. You know, everything is, is you know, you can write all the stuff down. But truthfully, um, you know, for example, everyone understands uh, bowstring trusses. Clearly, you don't want to be on a bowstring truss. We just had an extra alarm the other day, bowstring truss roof. And it was an awesome refresher on what can happen in a bowstring truss roof, you know, when, when fire takes possession of, of, of that, uh, that roof space. Um, but, but if it's just, you know, if it's just contents under a bowstring truss, we're going to get after that fire. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to write that building off. So it's going to be predicated on the fire condition. Did it take possession of, or potentially even take possession of, of the space where those trusses are? Uh, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking finished roofing trusses. You know, clearly there could be uh, trusses in, in for, for uh, flooring components as well as for joists. Um, my, how, my home is a perfect example. I live in a home that was built probably right after World War II, the front half, but the back half where my addition is, is, is floor trusses. I have a dimensionally sawn roof, but um, I have trusses. I'm standing on trusses where I'm at. Um, so a basement fire by me in the back half of my house, not so good for firemen, you know, because there's no, there's no uh, I-beam, there's no lolly columns there. They span the width of the home. Fire takes possession of of the space that I'm standing on right now, this floor is going to collapse. So again, I guess at the end of the day, what it falls down to is you're going to look at the building and go, you know, where, wh what's going on with this fire? Uh, where is it at? Is it up above us or is it in a space where there are potentially trusses? It's going to be kind of a game day uh, decision at, at the, uh, at the officer or the chief's discretion, more or less, or, or you, if you're the roof man, you're going to look at it and go, I don't belong up here. Um, you know, then, then, you know, get on the radio and let, let the boss know. Cool. What, so, um, let's get back into doing some, some search. Uh, ISTA sure. and some of the, the standard, uh, ways we teach search, we know is just, is horrible. What, what, what are we missing? What are we missing in teaching new recruits on how to, how to do their searches? Um, you know what? Uh, so just going again in my uh, experience uh, being trained and everything, I, I will say this much um, again. Uh, you know, I can't, I can't thank this guy enough. This guy, Tom Shervino, I worked for again, he was my training chief. Uh, I went, when I got out of the Academy, he went back to shift. He was my shift captain. I worked on the squad with him. Um, he beat it like a dead horse. We searched. That's all we did. Search, search, search. That's all we did. We did it all the time. You know, granted, again, 
it was a working middle class neighborhood. We didn't have tons of fire duty. People owned their stuff, so they weren't very typically very careless. Um, but we drilled all the time on it. So, um, it, and it helped immensely. I think throughout the fire service, and I've seen guys from, I've, clearly I've seen guys in busy uh, uh, areas of uh, urban areas, um, all the way up to, um, you know, I've worked for fire departments where, you know, they didn't have a truck and, you know, it was all tanker operations. So I've kind of, you know, seen it and, and throughout, you know, training FDI scene, stuff like that. I've seen guys search from all over the country. We're just, we're not really good at it because I don't think we practice it enough, you know. Um, you know, training in burn towers and stuff like that, it, it really doesn't kind of mirror what we do in real life. Um, typically, fire duty, you know, unless you're in a real ghetto urban area, uh, a lot of what we do, probably most, is there are arson fires. So, you know, they're intentionally set. But people that have fires in their homes by accident usually aren't, you know, the best housekeepers as well. So searching a burn tower going in and there's a couple pallets going, we've all done it, and you get into this space and you're making your search, there's no obstacles. There's no, you know, once in a while there's a dresser or a bed in there and stuff like that. But really there's no trash. There's no boxes. I'm looking at my house. There's no boxes of Christmas ornaments. There's no shoes all over the place. There's no kids stuff everywhere. You know what I mean? So you know, when we go into these spaces and we're taught to swing tools and all that stuff, in real life, you know, you fill a, a 10 by 12 or a 12 by 12 bedroom, which is pretty typical here, uh, you know, in my neighborhood here, you know, um, you know, we don't have big, you know, 30 by 30 bedrooms here. You know, you fill that up with, with either a twin or a queen size bed, a dresser, a bureau, two nightstands. It's hard to swing a tool without hitting something. So it's, it's not really practical. There's clothes all over the floor and stuff like that. You know, so what I took away from teaching with you, Grant, was, and, and, and the other guys were awesome. You know, I mean, I learned a lot, and I appreciate the opportunity, is, you know, maybe leave that tool at the door, get in there with your hands. And I've, I've said it forever, you see better with your hands than a tool. And what I mean by that is when you, when you strip yourself of your senses, when you can't see your hand in front of your face, um, you, you use your hands to see, to feel, and to kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of gain that situational awareness. Where am I in this building? You do that with your hands. And if you have a tool in your hand and you're swinging it, and every every two or, you know, feet or, or so, every swing you're hitting something, you can get distracted real quick. So, you know what I'm saying? I'm not I'm not abandoning, your, abandoning the tools or leaving them on the rig by any stretch. You need your tools. You know, um, you need them with you. But maybe maybe set them somewhere and rip through that room. I, I feel like sometimes, and not all the time, but sometimes maybe swinging that halogen around is more of an anchor than anything else. I can rip through a room bare, you know, with, with my hands quicker than I can with a tool. I don't know if that makes sense, but I can get in there, make my searches, feel around, go over the bed, go to the other side, make a search on the other side of the bed, and then get back out that room reasonably quickly. But if I've got a tool with me, I, you know, you, you just could miss something because a tool could hit something and, and not read that it's a potential victim. I don't know if that makes sense, but, and then, you know, get right back to your tools and bring them with you to the, to the next, uh, you know, space or room or whatever. Um, so, you know, do practicing that in a, in a, in a, in a tower or a can or something like that. It's really hard to emulate real conditions. I mean, if, if we're all honest with ourselves, you just look around your own home or your apartment, 
clearly you have more stuff in your house than we have in, 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 in where we, where we practice or do our drills and stuff like that. So unless you're training in real environments, uh, it's hard to emulate that. So, um, you know, I, I guess that's one thing we're missing in training. And then again, uh, having the opportunity to be around, uh, my, my captain Shervino at the time, he, 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 he passed this on. I mean, this is over 20 years ago. He said, just call out. I mean, it's as simple as just asking them where they're at. And in, in my experience, it's worked for me a couple of times. It's worked for friends of mine. If you get to the front door and you pop that front door and you just say, hey, are you in here? Any, where are you? If, if a person is even semi-conscious, they're going to answer you. They don't want to be in there. They're going to they're going to do something. They're going to try to respond to you. They may they may just cough or they might be vomiting or something. But if I just if you just call out, they're going to answer you. And and clearly, in my experience, every time they've all they've always said, "I am over here, over here." Well, over here doesn't mean anything to you when you can't see your hand in front of your face. It just means I'm going to go now, go left or right. It steers your search. So, you know, I don't always go right or I always go left. I kind of go, usually I'll call out and if I don't hear anything, I go with the swing of the door because that typically the swing of the door will point to the outside wall by us. Um, you know, prior to air conditioning, doors and windows lined up with one another because that's how you cooled your, your house off at night before air conditioning is you opened all your windows and your doors and the breeze would go through your home. So usually the swing of the door points to the outside wall by us. And that kind of gets me to that outside wall. Can I open it up? All that stuff we talked about earlier. But um, yeah, I mean, for me, you know, it just, just again, I mean, it doesn't burn any calories. It doesn't cost you anything. Pop the front door, let the building burp, get down under it and just say, hey, where are you? And, but everybody's got to hold their breath. You know, it's hard to do. And, you know, I talk about it in training all the time. I mention it all the time. And everybody, everybody inevitably, they shake their head. Yeah, you know what? That's a good idea. I always say, you know, prior to you being a fireman, before you got issued fire gear, if your neighbor's house is on fire and their car was in the driveway or out front or whatever, what would you do? And, I, you know, I, of course, everyone says, well, I call 911. Clearly, you're going to call 911. But after that, would you would you have raced in a building on fire? Probably, probably not, right? But maybe you kick the front door in or push the front door in and say, hey, hey, uh, you know, hey, you know, Joe, are you home? Are you in there? Is anybody in here? That, but we, we get the fire gear, we put the mask on, and we lose common sense. We just lose it. We just, we just don't think that way. So it, it, I'm telling you, it works, but everybody's got to be on the same page. Because if I'm with Grant and he calls out and I'm breathing or I take the window next to him, we might have missed the opportunity for that person to answer us. I mean, with their last breath, they're going to try to get your attention. So whatever, whatever it is, they might be gasping or whatever it is. So everyone needs to be disciplined in that we hold our breath for, you know, whatever, three seconds or whatever, right? Just give them that opportunity to answer you. And if you don't hear anything, then make your move. Then you flip a coin and you just go with your gut, right? Um, and it's not, and it's not like every crawl you go, anybody in here, anybody in here, anybody in here. It's like, you know, just use your head. You know, if I'm at the front door, I kick the front door and I call out, I don't hear anything. I make my move through the building. Now, maybe I get to the back of that building you know, or I get to that second floor, then I'm going to stop and I'm going to call out again. You know, I get to the top of the stairs. I could go left or right, call out. Um, I had a fire on Christmas Eve years ago, lower floor fire, two story ordinary it was like a raised two story. I think it was a four flat Christmas Eve. And, uh, we had a report of people in the building. We knew there were people in there. I got up to the second floor first and 
I call, you know, I get to the top of the stairs. I go over the fire compartment. I go to the apartment above the fire. I pop the door and I call out. I hear something behind me down the hall. I abandon that apartment. I just force that door. I go to the other apartment. I, here's a lesson I learned the hard way. I pop the front door to this place and I call out. I hear a woman. I'm over here. That's what they always say. I'm over here. So now it's a left-hand swinging door. I pop it. I go in the building and I'm cheating. I'm not crawling. I'm cheating. I'm, I'd be lying if I said I was doing the right thing. But I got my hand on the wall and I come off the door and I go right to the wall. My hand's on the wall and I'm sweeping up and down. I'm like, well, where are you? Keep talking. And now I hear it behind me again. I go, what is going on here? What happened? What did I miss? Right? So I turn around and now I go back and now I got my right hand on the wall and I'm sweeping back. I'm going back towards the door. I just came in with a left hand swinging door it opened all the way against the wall. Okay. So I get back behind the door and I feel the trim on a door. There was a door behind that front door. And what I mean by that is it was a left-handed swinging door. So as you walked in the apartment, if you closed the door right in front of you would have been another door. So that uh, the apartment door opened against another door. I missed it. I missed it because I was, you know, cheating. I was in a rush. I heard this woman and I knew that the door opened against the wall. So there wasn't a body behind it. The door swang open. I didn't, it wasn't like I had to push it open, but I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't search behind the door. Like we're always to told to do. Well, I missed that room. Anyway, I come back. She's in there with her kids. I shut the door and uh, it was an older building, real tall windows. So the smoke condition in there wasn't, wasn't good. The kid, one of the kids was getting sick. And uh, uh, anyway, but it wasn't any smokier than like an Irish tavern. So I took the windows, closed the door, took the windows and uh, put the kids at the window. Everyone's breathing fresh air. We're all good. I, here's where I screwed up too. I see the chief on the street and I tell her, I go, hey, chief, we're good. You know, I give her the signal. We're good. The, everyone's good to go. They're getting water on the fire under us. The saws are ripping the roof. And I, all this is going on. And I think to myself, what, you know, I'm, well, I'm just going to protect in place. We're okay. We have a handle on this fire. Roof's not open yet. So it's still pretty bad in, in, in the floor above clearly in her apartment. And um, so I kind of protect in place. So anyway, we're there. I didn't get on the radio and say anything. I didn't. So that's something that's vitally important because everyone is sticking their neck out and putting themselves in, 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 in a position or positions that could get themselves hurt. I've done it myself. If you, if you get into a spot and you find somebody, you got to announce it because people are making corners and making, get, putting themselves in spots they probably wouldn't normally be without a handline because clear, you know, the report of people trapped. So we're sticking our neck out. Had I gotten on a radio, everyone can now kind of, you know, kind of relax a little bit. Okay, they're accounted for. We're good. Everyone relax. Go back to, you know, even the most seasoned firemen, I don't care who you are, you know, a fire is a fire, you know, whatever. But when people are trapped, that's when, for me, it becomes, you know, it's like a job now. It's, it's serious. It's, it's not fun. People are trapped in this building. It's serious. So I didn't do that because I, I made eye contact with her. I was talking to her, she, you know, and uh, that the second new truck was going to throw a ground ladder. But with that, uh, another lesson learned. Now I hear the other firemen now catch up and they're on the second floor and they're ripping through this apartment. I can hear them. I can hear them. They're like bulls in a china shop. I didn't get on the radio. They're still searching for these, these people that are reported missing or trapped. And, um, but they're not calling out. And I didn't say anything because I had these kids at the window. One kid had my mask or whatever. And, you know, whatever. Then another guy from my company and a, and a truck captain find the room and they're like, what are you doing? Let's go, let's go, let's go. So we drag these, this woman and the kids out and we go down the stairs. Now they're pushing the ceiling on us and stuff. 
but whatever. So I think we would have been our better off kind of camping out, but, um, you know, lesson learned is just simply calling out. If I had, I not called out, I would have searched that apartment above the fire, you know, because that's the, that's the spot, you know, that's the worst spot, you know, that's kind of where you begin on the floor above the fire is above the fire. They're in the frying pan. Um, but by calling out, I, I keyed in on, on her. And like I said, I abandoned that whole apartment. I didn't even go in it. And I went to the other one. That's again, that's where she was. So, um, you know, again, I, it didn't, didn't cost me anything. It didn't take any effort. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, clearly just using common sense and asking them where they're at. They're going to answer you every time. Now, one other thing uh, I remember you passing on to me was uh, when you find a victim, if you can pass them off, where, where'd you get that from? Or, or how'd you come up with yeah. that and your experience? Um, this was, uh, we had a fire in a high rise project on the fourth floor, Super Bowl Sunday, 2005. And we're going to the fire. Um, I was in Manhattan at the time. I was in the, up in Harlem. And um, we get there first to truck, show up, and there's a woman at the fourth floor window. So we know there's people trapped. And I was on the irons that day. Uh, get, to, get to the fire floor. One of the neighbors uh, in a neighboring apartment had tried to do the right thing and tried to get the people out. They kicked in the front door of this apartment. So, excuse me, there was no self-closer on the door. Whatever, for whatever reason, the door didn't close. It was left open. So now the hallway is, is a mess as well. So we got to the stairs. We searched. We find the apartment. Uh, go in. It's a right-hand swinging door. Typically, again, in, in that setup of the apartment, it pointed to the back of the apartment. So that right-hand swinging door was against a wall that went from past through the, it was like a galley kitchen, kind of living space, back to the bedrooms. So uh, the fire was in the living space, and, uh, you know, uh, it's me and my officer. Um, I get in there get in there first, didn't have the four stores left open. I get back to the first bedroom. I call out, don't hear anything. I rip through that bedroom. By the time I came out of the bedroom, my officer catches up. And now he's in the lead and he goes into the room where the woman was showing at the window. So I crawl forward and um, I'm, I go from hardwood floor to, uh, not hardwood floor, but um, whatever, linoleum. And I get into, into a ceramic area. So I know I passed the kitchen because it was at the front door. I know I'm in the bathroom and conditions weren't good. Couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And I think to myself, okay, he's got the grab. I'll just search this area. It's clearly the bathroom. There's nothing going to be in here. Well, I get crawl in there and there's a woman, uh, kind of, uh, she's not clothed and she's hanging, uh, in the bathtub. She's like stooped over the bathtub. So I kind of crawl out. I poke my head in the bedroom and I say, hey, boss, I got one. He radios, uh, you know, down to the chief and I, I reach in the tub. She's um, unconscious. So it kind of pushes me backwards. She's a robust woman and I begin to drag her. So as I'm making my way past the front room, the engine made the standpipe. They're now coming in, fighting the way out and this and that and the other thing. So get her into the hallway and now clearly it's congested. Everybody's up there. And I'm like, well, you know, no, you know, we always train on grab the dummy or a lot of times we train on because as instructors are lazy, we don't want to reset. Well, just, you know, find the dummy and leave it. Well, nobody ever really kind of talked to me about like, you know, I was a young fireman. Like, what do you do once you find somebody in real life? So I didn't, you know, I didn't know what to do. So me and another guy from um, second new engine, 
got her down into the vestibule and began CPR and stuff like that. So, um, but that said, what I, uh, where I screwed up, one, I feel like uh, at the end of the day, walking up to that building, even though she was in the fourth floor and it was dark out, I probably could have hit her with my hand light, got her attention and just asked her, hey, is anybody else up there with you? Okay. You know, being a young fireman, being inexperienced, I looked at it like, okay, there's only one person trapped. Well, there wasn't. It was her at the window, her mom, who was in the bathtub, and her brother, who was under her mom. I missed her brother. And uh, to be a bold-faced life, I don't say that, um, you know, it, uh, it's fixing my crawl. Every time I talk about it, 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 it really bothers me. Every time I think about it, uh, the kid, the boy lived, the woman passed away, but had that boy passed away, that was on me. That that would have been something I would have had to live with. Luckily, um, which was kind of out of um, out of ordinary, but the second due truck officer made that same apartment and found the boy in the bathtub. So luckily, the, again, boy survived. Um, you know, it's not something I'm proud of, but again, I like I said earlier, I, I learned the hard way. And uh, that's a lesson that I'll never forget. Um, if you find somebody, always, 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 especially a mom, search around her. Her, you know, um, mama bear is always going to be with her cubs. Always. Mom's always going to walk through fire to, to get her kids. So take a second. If you're worried about them scampering away, you could kneel on them, whatever. Just take a second, flip her over, search under her. Okay, or take a second and just do a quick snow angel around that other person because, you know, in, when that's, you know, if you're, if you're a kid, you're scared, even an adult, and you don't, clearly you don't want to be alone. You know, I've only been to one fire where I, you know, I found a kid, there was a kid right next to that one, and then remote from those two children, there was another kid in another room. That, that was uh, kind of out of the ordinary. Um, you know, and this fire in Harlem was kind of the same where people were remote from one another. Usually they're going to be huddled together. So I would say just take an extra three seconds, search under that person and around them because it's happened multiple times where I found somebody and then boom, there was somebody right next to them, you know, whether conscious or unconscious, you know, people, um, you know, when that's going on, you don't want to be alone. When your house is on fire and you're scared and, you know, you think the worst, you 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 don't want to be alone. So and again, you know, you know, a mom's going to be with her children. So take that extra second, search around them. It could make, it could make clearly, in my experience, it made the difference between life and death. You know, had I searched for that kid, or just searched under her, you know, I I find a kid too. And you know, again, the the boy lived, but the the woman um, passed away unfortunately. Um, you know, she gave her life to protect her son. And had he um, not made it, um, you know, it, it it bothers me that I missed him in the first place. I can't imagine how I'd feel had he uh, not survived. So uh, a real, real tough, real tough lesson to learn the hard way, that one for sure. So to that point, and I think you mentioned finding a victim. If there's another crew member maybe backing up a line and the fire's knocked down, you mentioned just passing that victim off. Yeah, that way yeah I'm sorry I got a little off track, search. but you're right, Grant. You know, um, so the next day I spoke to a, a friend of mine, uh, God rest his soul, Pete Lawn. He was uh, an officer in Rescue 2. He was in the busiest fire companies in FDNY. And I called Pete and I told him what happened. He goes, listen, every single time, he goes, do this. 
the first person you find that's not involved in the in fire suppression, so anybody, anybody other than a nozzleman, more or less, pass that person off and go right back to where you left off. Because if I, by me dragging that woman down to the lobby and doing CPR, that second dude truck officer had to go into that apartment and basically start from scratch, where I already had a mental picture in my head of the layout of that apartment. I could have went right back to where I left off. Maybe I find the kid, maybe I don't, I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I can't say that, but you know, at least I knew exactly where I left off and I could have went right back to that spot and finished up the rest of that apartment. Um, and, and clearly that, that clearly shaves down or cuts, cuts a lot of uh, time out of it. So again, you know, uh, Pete said, listen, you get that person. He goes, I can't tell you how many times I've made a second grab because I handed that person off and went right back to where I left off. So, you know, that was another one I learned the hard way there, you know. Um, so something we included in our class that I think a lot of classes get missed, so you touched on it, is sometimes the instructors get lazy. We don't want to reset the victims and everything like that. Um, yeah. What? I'm, I'm guilty of it too, Grant. You know what I mean? I mean, I'd be, <laughs> but, I'd be lying but, if I said I'm not. So do we overcomplicate? drags in victim removal <laughs> when we address it I, I think so and i'll tell you why and this this is just this is just real life right? you know that's that's all i can speak of you know it's you know I, listen i i had the you know that grab i was telling you about on super bowl sunday i had the webbing on me i had it i had it right there in my pocket but i can tell you this it's the last thing i thought of and i spoke to another friend of mine chief Hayd, who was just retired most senior member on fdny uh just retired uh this you know, past fall, God bless him. Um, he told me the same thing. He goes, listen, you got the webbing on you. He goes, it's the last thing you're going to think of. He echoed what I was thinking. I th thank God, because I thought, you know, I really screwed up. He goes, you're going to grab that person and you're going to just start dragging them. And you're not going to think about the webbing until you begin to fatigue, until you start, they start to slip out of your hands and you start to get tired because everything in your nature, everything Every fiber of your being is going to be grab them and go, 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 go. And you can't go fast enough. And in your head, you're thinking you're going slow. So to take a second and to wrap them up with webbing. So, you know, you can imagine, you know, you're emotionally invested in this in this situation that's going on. It's clearly not a dummy. It's a real person. Maybe it's the first time. Maybe it's the hundredth time. But you're going to be over your skis to one degree or another because it's for real. It's real life. So I, I just tell unless you can do this webbing, whatever you do, unless you can do it in your sleep, you know, blindfolded, um, and make it happen now in three seconds, it's, it's not going to happen in real life. It's just it's not going to happen. You're not going to think about it until you begin to get tired. Because I can only speak for Chicago and the, and the men I work with, the guys I work with and girls. I can assure you, if I take a second, I find somebody, and if I tell somebody, and I'm or I'm kneeling over that person, I reach in my pocket to grab some webbing. Whoever my partner is, or whoever's behind me, is going to reach over me, grab that person, and drag them over me. That's just real life. That's just that, that's a, that's what's going to happen. So unless you are, uh, you know, so proficient at it that you can just make it happen, like right now, less than five seconds now. I just don't think it's going to happen. Or maybe, maybe real life is, you know, like you drag them into an area of refuge or get them down from that second floor that's involved or whatever, get them off the fire floor to a lower floor, and you still have a ways to go to get them out to the front, to the street. Maybe that's when you take a second and wrap them up with the webbing and, and finish, the, finish the drag. But um, 
I just think real life, however the person presents you, clearly, you know, it might be might be better because it narrows their profile to grab them by the wrists and, you know, it narrows their shoulders and stuff and whatever. But, you know, if they show they're at the door, you get into this space and their feet are there, you're probably in real life. I mean, if we're all honest with ourselves, you're probably just going to grab them by the feet and start dragging them. You know, I mean, I just that's just what's going to probably happen, you know. Um, but again, I care. I still carry webbing. I mean, I have it. It's in my, uh, you know, it's in my whatever arsenal, whatever. But honestly, in real life, I just I think, you know, uh, you're just going to find it if you you know, when you find this person, however they're presenting, you're going to make it happen. That's, that's how we're built. You're going to make it happen. How, whatever, however it shakes out, it may not be uh, the most graceful, um, but you're going to make it happen. You're going to make it work. And then you get to an area where maybe now, you know, you're t getting a little tired. Now we're clearly out of harm's way. Now maybe we wrap this person up with whatever you would, however you like to wrap them up and, and, and get them out to, uh, get them out to the street. Right. Great. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, is there any particular way, Larry, that you're? I know Grant wrote an article a few months back, and uh, he shared some of his ways to grab folks. Is there any particular way you're looking to wrap these folks up? I mean, I know you're not going for your webbing; you're just grabbing them, getting them out. But anything you can pass yeah. along to anybody? Um, honestly, um, again, I I have the webbing. It's my intention. You know, I mean, it's everybody's intention to kind of do what we've been trained to do. But I think human nature and real life is different. And like, like I said, however they present is probably how you're going to grab them. But I will say this. If you do have a partner or if you're by yourself, um, a lot like a hand line. And we, it, it, it clearly it can happen with, um, you know, the dummies we build and stuff or by as well. But real people, when you pull them around a 90 what I mean by that is you pull them around a corner or you pull them around a newel post, they get hung up like it's a hand line. And you'll, because you are in that, you know, you're emotionally uh, invested in this uh, operation. You could really, you know, of course they're unconscious, they're not going to complain, but you could really hurt them pulling them around a corner. So it's a real good practice. And it's kind of, again, this is really hard to do in real life because once you get going, you never want to stop. But if you get to a newel post or you get to that wall where you got to turn and go make a turn, go uh, at a corner, it's not a bad idea whether you have their feet or you have their wrist to take a second, set the whatever part of them you have down, get to the opposite end and lift them and, and, and put them in line with your drag. Because pulling somebody around a corner is not only hard, but boy, it's going gonna, it's gonna to do a number on them as well. And the best way to figure or to learn this is to be the victim. You know, if you want to learn how to treat a victim is to be the victim in the drill. You know, I mean, I remember a drill I was doing uh, a while back with some real seasoned guys and the drill was, I fell down some stairs. I turned my ankle. I just turned my ankle. I couldn't get out of the building. So these members, good firemen, they're dragging me out and they're like really rushing me out of this building and I'm like I'm getting banged up right so at one point this big guy picks me up because he had to uh, get me up uh, basically to uh, uh, a little bit higher level maybe he had to lift me two feet but to to finish the drag he picks me up and he basically body slams me so I'm, I stopped the drill I go I go listen you know you're gonna put me in a wheelchair for the rest of my life for a turned ankle take it easy you know 
stop. This is, this is insanity. You guys are aggressive to a fault. So the best way to learn how to treat a victim is to be the victim. I think you'll have a greater respect for being pulled around a corner uh, if, if, if it's you that's getting your ribs uh, dragged across that, uh, that edge. So, you know, um, you know, a dummy's not going to complain. A hose dummy is never going to tell you, hey, take it easy. But uh, truly, the best way to learn how to, how to treat a victim is to practice being that victim. And I think you'll get a, a, a better, better appreciation for it. So again, I, you know, I don't, I guess I don't have a, a preferred way more or less. I, I, I think I, um, you're just going to kind of, whatever shows up, you're going to kind of make that happen until you get to a point where you can then kind of pump the brakes a little bit and look at the, readdress the situation. We're out of harm's way now and then, uh, finish, finish the removal. Yeah, that's perfect. I think uh, we've been forced to do that. Some of our training, having one of our members act as that victim, and it totally changes your mindset. Um, you're not just dragging someone by their face down the stairs. Um, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, I, you know what? I've never been – I mean, I've been the victim in a writ scenario, but being – I'd like to do it now in training, uh, take the gear off, you know, because even when we, we drag folks and they're in their gear and they're playing, you know, that victim, they're still in their bunker gear, so they have – some sort, you know, not dragging their bare skin across the concrete floor or raking them around a corner or something like that. Um, yeah, I think that's that's perfect. Um, Want to switch gears here? Um, I sure. think a lot of folks uh, know you for your search, and obviously you made plenty of grabs in your career. Uh, going back to 2012, uh, you were given the Ray Downey Courage and Valor Award at FDIC um, for saving one of the lives of uh, your brothers, uh, Chicago firefighter Gerald Carter. If you could kind of run us through that, uh, you know, whole scenario and what was going on. We've read the description Grant and I have, but if you could pass that along to the uh, other folks listening. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, it was a, uh, a fire in like a raised uh, or elevated first floor uh, story net frame. Um, the fire was in the front bedroom. Um, it was an occupied space on the second floor, so it was uh, kind of chopped up. And more or less, it, we would have been second due, so it was in the neighborhood. Uh, we got out onto uh, Ashland Avenue, the street in front of the firehouse, and looking south, you could see, you know, you could see the header was middle of the day, if memory serves. And um, going down there, we knew we had a fire, so. I would happen to be in our snorkel, which is a elevated uh, aerial device, master stream. And the fire condition to me looked like we could potentially, you know, uh, you know, I'm down the block now. I'm looking down the block, but it was ripping out of that front gable window so aggressively. I thought, well, you know, this could be a goner. You know, we could be going up in the air in this basket. So we were thinking about, you know, positioning the rig, not getting boxed out. We might have to pull down on this. And uh, the members were already um, making a stretch. The first two truck was getting to the roof and all that stuff. So walked down the block, um, I forget the exact address, middle of the block. And um, because we were in the back, like I said earlier, me and my partner are addressing the rear of the building. And I poked my head in the first floor. Uh, the door, the kitchen door was open. The kitchens are usually in the rear of those type of buildings. And I see the officer, I said, do they have, do they have water on this yet? And I could see the hand line going upstairs and he goes, you know, he's like, I don't know, you know, but they're up there. We're, we're getting this thing. So, um, 
The second dude truck, again, is responsible for throwing a secondary means of egress for the first dude truck. So they're throwing a ladder to the back, and it was like a setback off the kitchen. So it was like a, a roof or an addition off of the back that I climbed up on and got in a second floor window and um, began my search there. So the f fire is opposite me in the front. Um, I could hear other members operating up in front of me, uh, put my face piece on, pull the hood up, do all that stuff. And I get into this space now, a um, couple lessons here. If for nothing else, I would have remembered this fire because it was um, extraordinarily hot. It was, it was really warm. Again, like I described earlier, these type of buildings, because uh, the occupied spaces are typically smaller because of the peaked roof. Um, you know, you have these knee walls, these walls that are pushed in from the load-bearing walls, the voids behind them, and it's just more of a confined space than if it was a typical two or three or four-story building. Um, they're angled roofs, if you can imagine the type of building construction I'm talking about. And what had happened was um, that there was an outward swinging door on this bedroom that was in the front of the building. So when the engine got to the top of the stairs, they made a left. Now they're facing the fire. It's showing itself. And the pipe man, uh, younger guy, younger fireman, real aggressive, uh, hits it, and he's next beginning to knock this fire down. They're at the top of the stairs working their way towards this bedroom. Um, you know, it's like any other, you know, near miss or whatever you, you read. It's not one thing. It's a bunch of things that go wrong. Well, it had because it had an outward swinging door, with the hand line, he had washed the door closed. So he pushes the door closed, and the fire that he began to knock down lights back up. Our members get to the top of the stairs. We begin to start opening these 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 knee walls uh, to make sure that it's not in these voids. We're working our way towards the seat of the fire, and uh, I'm now I'm up. I pass the stairs are on my left. I you know I I'm pretty much kind of have a pretty good idea where I'm at. I can hear the hand line and it's getting warmer and warmer and warmer and warmer and we're clearly not winning. <clears throat> um, and I hear uh, the chief over the radio say, okay, yeah, no, no, you're doing great. Okay, that's it. You know, you're doing good. Okay, now you got it again. I'm like, and I, I can hear the pipe. I can't see it. It's, it's right next to me and there's other guys around me. And I, I see, I tap the guy in front of me. I go, hey, whatever you're doing, we're winning. Keep it up. Well, it's another member from my company. He turns around. He's like, you know, I don't have the pipe. So with that, the pipe happened to be behind me. It washes my helmet off. Shame on me. I'm not properly uh, wearing my PPE. I don't have my chin strap on. Okay. So my helmet goes flying off and my head is not wet. I have my hood up, but I am, I don't belong there. I'm thinking to myself, I don't, I am not helping. I'm being, this is be, you know, this is getting, I'm in the way. I can't find my helmet. And I'm thinking like, you know, I've never really been in a spot, but I'm like, I don't, I, I think I got to get out of here. So with that, I find my helmet. It's, you know, I find it. Well, nobody ever told me when you find your helmet in those conditions to dump it out, right? Turn it upside down. So I pick my helmet up. I put it back on my head. It was scolding hot water in the helmet. And it felt like hot lava on my head. And I thought, oh, my God, what did I just do to myself? I just burned myself. So with that, I hear the chief go, you know what, fellas, let's, you know what, let's just, let's just back down. We'll give it a little, you know, we'll, we'll just 
whack it from outside for a minute, and then you guys can get back after it. Just get to the bottom of the stairs. So with that, I just thought I burned myself dumping my helmet on my head. And I, and I was like, gladly, I'm, you know, I'm like, yeah, I'm not having a good day. So I got to the bottom of the stairs and the members start coming down. Um, they're about to give it a hit from the outside once we're all back down. Well, with that, uh, guys start now stammering down. As I turned to go down the stairs, the fire had, everything began to get orange at the ceiling. So everything, we were getting run over. It, um, as I got uh, up to that uh, doorway um, of that bedroom, uh, it was beginning to burn through the top of the door. You could see it. So as we're backing down, uh, now guys are now falling down the stairs, and I hear somebody still up there. So I still had all my PPE on. I had my regulator disconnected, but my face piece was on. And I said, you know, what, who's up there? I heard a name. It was a member uh, I was unfamiliar with because he was a candidate or a probie. And, uh, you know, a couple of us race back up there um, and I get to the top of the stairs. One guy follows a hand line and, and this member's pass device was activated. So I went to my left following the path. It's a great drill. It works in real life um, and found the member um, unconscious and he presented himself feet first. So I grabbed him, spun him around more or less. I grabbed him by his shoulder straps. You know, we have the drag device built into our gear. The last thing I thought of, real life, it's, you know, I can only speak from real life. I grabbed whatever handle he had on him and I started, began to drag him. That was it. That was, that, that's what I had time for. Um, conditions were not good, zero visibility. Uh, we still didn't have the fire knocked down. They gave it a kind of a whack from outside, but it still wasn't good uh, heat-wise. Um, got to the top of the stairs, and like I was saying, uh, having a member help turn that person, uh, I, he got hung up on the top of the stairs. I could He's a bigger guy. I could barely get him around that corner, but I did. And I probably you know, didn't do him any justice as far as that's concerned. He was banged up after that and just dragged him down the stairs, got him to the bottom stairs. He was on top of me. I collapsed. He was on top of me. Uh, you know, I mean, I was gassed. Um, you know, I had already been operating at this fire and then this happens. Uh, by that time, the RIT team was activated. They came into the first floor and, and completed the removal of uh, that, that fireman in distress. And luckily, um, you know, he was unconscious. Uh, I got up, I went out to the street. Clearly there's a big, uh, you know, kind of huddle around him. He's in the street. Uh, a good friend of mine, Danny McVicker, got a tube in him right away. But, you know, his tongue was black and hanging out of his mouth. His eyes were rolled back in his head. And I thought, I can't, you know, no, you know, none of us think that that's ever going to happen. You know, you just don't, we don't think that way. We're not built like that. But this was happening. And luckily he was tubed. Um, and, and you know, that, that helped save his life. I mean, it did, that saved his life. So the paramedics really, I was just like a big dumb dog that went to get the stick. The paramedics, uh, my buddy Dan uh, in Engine 116 at the time, he, Dan McVicker, he, he's the guy that really saved his life. Got the tube in him and, you know, went to the hospital. He was in a coma. But when he came out, um, what he said to another member in my company who he's really close with, he said, listen, what happened was 
he um, he lost his helmet as well. Um, he's on pipe. We're getting run over now. We're about to back down and lost his helmet. Uh, again, chin strap guys, you know, and he put the pipe down to cover his head with his hands. He got spun around and he collapsed. And what he told my friend Ray, he said, the last thing I remember is telling my body to move and it wouldn't. And he woke up in the hospital. And what had happened was his face piece, the netting of the face piece, uh, you know, melted to his head. His face piece was just then dislodged. And, you know, he took a pretty good dose. Um, again, luckily he's, he, he's alive. His first day back at the firehouse, he wanted to be on the pipe again. You know, again, aggressive fireman, great engine company uh, that he's in. Um, and, he's, and he's doing fine today. But, um, you know, the other thing that saved his life, and, and I made this comment to him when I saw him in the hospital, I said, you know, I said, um, I said, you had your, your waist straps fastened. And this wasn't, this was a practice that not all of us were doing, you know. I mean, uh, I, I always did because I like the weight of the air pack on my hips because, you know, in the squat or a truck, you work with your, you work with your hands over your head all the time, pulling ceiling, whatever, forcing doors, swinging tools. I don't like the weight of that air pack on my shoulders. It's a burden, you know, and I'd rather have it on my hips and legs uh, so that I can, you know, feel like I can operate more freely. Uh, if you don't have your waist straps on, it's just kind of on your shoulders. And it's in real, for me, it's an anchor. So, you know, we were pretty disciplined guys in my company. Everybody wore the waist straps, but not, you know, I mean, let's be honest, not everybody did at the time. Um, but his captain made him wear his waist straps. Was was you know religious about it? Hey, wear your waist straps, Kenny. You know, wear wear your waist straps. That saved his life because he had so little. Honest, I I just feel like he had so little. We had such a small window that if we didn't get him out um, right then, um, things could have been different. So I guess what I'm getting at is, if I would have grabbed him, and which I did, by his shoulder strap, and that air pack came off, then I'm grabbing him by the coat. Maybe his coat comes off. He's a big guy, heavy dude. Um, you know, now we're up there wrestling with this guy, you know, and, and I just, things could have been way different if his, if his captain uh, hadn't made him wear the waist straps. I honestly, I think that's, that's what saved his life because in real life, you know, you can do all the fancy rodeo stuff. That's all fine and good, but real life is different. And when you don't have uh, a lot of time, um, you're going to grab whatever handle that person is, you know, whatever they present with. If it's a shirt, whatever it is. You're going to grab that handle and you're going to go. It's, that's how we're built. And then you're not going to think about all that fancy stuff you did in drill until you begin to get tired, you know. Um, so I think that's, that's what made a world of difference uh, was the fact that this cat wore his waist strap. And honestly, throughout the job now, it, you'd be hard-pressed in Chicago to find a guy that doesn't wear his waist strap now. I mean, it, that, that – um, that changed our culture. I think that, that one run, you know, uh, we're pretty good about it. You know, it'd be a bold faced life. I said, we're all wearing our chin straps like we should. And I honestly, here's another thing. I mean, we wouldn't even be, I wouldn't even be probably other than I remember that fire being hot and what happened to me with the helmet, you know, falling off. Um, but we wouldn't even be talking about this fire. If, 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 uh, I might not even be talking about it. If I didn't have my, if I had my chin strap on and nothing else happened, you know, it's just another fire, but, because I didn't, and then I had that scolding hot water in my helmet. I didn't, you know, I learned the hard way. I learned that lesson, dump your helmet out. 
Um, but also, had he been wearing his chin strap, and we were told to, to you know, just back up a little bit, back down the stairs, he's wearing his chin strap as well. You know, maybe maybe we're not talking about this fire at all because that's what what kind of kicked this off was the fact that um, we weren't wearing our PPE uh, properly. You know, if it you know, if we're if we're being honest, so. You know, a lot of hard lessons there, but at the end of the day, um, you know, everybody returned to work, and uh, that's, you know, he got to, um, you know, he got to go back to his kids. So that's all that matters, right? That's awesome points about, about wearing your PPE properly. Um, so you told me, and you made that grab, were able to assist him just by being in the vicinity. Uh, Don Abbott. Uh, in the May Day project, did did some pretty good studies, and and what it what it says is, thirty nine percent of the time it's another crew member working in the same area, or thirty one percent of the time it's a crew of the person having the May Day. Eighteen percent of the time it's self rescue, and only eleven percent of the time it's the Rit or Rick. Um, so based on those stats, kind of seem to echo what you what some of the stories you were telling me. If you were to put, what are we missing in self rescue and Rick? If we're to teach people stuff, uh, you know what? Well, definitely self rescue, and certainly writ uh, to one degree or another. I mean, I, I believe in the fire service we put the cart in front of the horse a lot of times. In that, you know, we 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 practice writ 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 writ, but we're not really training our members how not to put yourself in a position that you're going to be in distress and you need to call Mayday. I mean, clearly, you know, cardiac episodes and stuff like that, um, they happen. And that's beyond our control. But we've also had members that, because of a lack of uh, knowledge of building instruction and fire behavior, have put themselves in situations that they got jammed up. So um, I think it begins with firemanship 101 uh, and just having a real good handle on how buildings are put together and what fire is going to do in that building and what to do and what not to do, what void to open and what void not to open. You know, do we have a, have a hand line? Do we need a hand line? Is there a hand line? Um, so it's all game day stuff, uh, you know, at the at the end of the day. Um, but, I mean, I'm not saying – I'm not um, downplaying RIT or self-rescue or any of that. I think self-rescue, again, begins with, with knowledge of building instruction and fire behavior, in all honesty. I mean, that's probably the cornerstone. But, um, I'm not, again, I'm not downplaying RIT. Certainly – uh, it's another tool in the toolbox, but I think if we have a better uh, handle or understanding on on the basics, we're a whole lot le le less likely to get in a position where we need uh, to get on the radio and say, "Hey, I need a hand over here. I'm I'm jammed up." Again, it's an inherently dangerous job. You know, we could do every our job. You could do every single thing right and still get hurt and still get jammed up, and that happens. Uh, again. Um, you know, medical issues beyond our control, but I think we need to drill on the basics more um, and how not to put yourself in a position where you need to be, uh, you know, you need to call a mayday. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, it's kind of my take on it. Yeah, it does make sense. And, and can you speak to the maydays or maybe near misses that you've been involved in? Uh, and you, you know, it, you kind of mentioned that it wasn't the RIT team making the first contact. Yeah, you talk yeah about I mean, you know, it's, it's not that they're not engaged um, or, 
you know, dialed in or squared away. It's, it's that they're remote from the situation. You know, the guy that goes through the floor in front of you that's hanging by his elbows, clearly you're his partner. You're pulling him up. And maybe you don't even call the mayday. You might even finish the fire and get back after and go, hey, pull a door off and cover this hole. We do it all the time. There's holes in floors. That's how arson fires start. They pour gas. There's going to be a hole in the floor where they started that fire. We just knock doors off and put the doors over the hole. It, it's, we do it all the time. But, but um, yeah, I mean, we have a lot of near misses that, that just, they just go unreported because it's kind of par for the course. It's just, you know, hey, there's a hole over here. Don't step over here. Or, you know, there's a vent grate missing or they stole the radiator. So there's, you know, there's a big hole in the floor over here. Um, that, that kind of stuff, uh, you know, that kind of stuff happens. Um, I, I, you know what, I'm not well read on all the stats and stuff like that, but I can say just, just from my, in my travels and my very limited experience, I don't, I can't say, uh, could be wrong, but at the, at the fires I've been to that we had a situation where the RIT team was activated and made the, solely made the removal. I, I, I don't, you know, if memory serves, I haven't been to a fire like that where we had a member in distress. And we call the mayday, and the RIT team came in and made that said removal. You know, more times than not, it's the guy next to you, or it's the company. Again, in in our squad company, um, we, you know, we we're we're position, we're not as position orientated as regular companies in that. You know, we're, you know, um, I guess what I'm saying is, every other member needs to be disciplined and keep doing whatever job they're doing. If everyone drop, if you drop the pipe and everybody races to the, to the member in the stress, things are going to get worse. But if we continue what we're doing, we put the fire out or begin to knock the fire down or keep knocking the fire down, things are going to get better. And, you know, then the red team could come in and make a move in a squad company in Chicago. We can, whatever we're doing, cause we're, you know, we're kind of filling in the gaps. We could probably more times than not, uh, turn away unless we're unless we are on hand line, we could turn away or drop what we're doing and go to help mitigate um, uh, that that May Day. So we would have a squad company. It would probably be on top of because we're we're going to be, you know, more times than not, we're operating in the area where the fire is and where the potential member that's in distress would be. So our guys are going to jump in and and you know pull their sleeves up, get after it. Uh, the RIT team would be activated, but our RIT team is out front. Um, so there's a, a reflex time, you know, they got to get in the building and get up to the, or get into the, the fire area or wherever that member is having a problem and, and begin to make, uh, make a difference. But more time, again, you know, in my, in my experience, it's, it's the guy that's next to you or it's your company or whoever you're with is going to begin to, you know, call for help and then begin to, to, uh, do what they can to, uh, to begin to make that removal. So, um, I think that's just real life, you know, I mean, I, you know, I don't know how other departments operate with the RIT teams, but you know, our RIT teams, you know, they're not, they're not on the front porch. They're, they're out on the sidewalk. So, you know, again, they're on the scene, they're engaged, they're squared away, but now we got to get up to the third floor. It's going to take a little time. So, um, you know, I think real life is going to be, you know, if I go, if I begin to fall through the floor, you know, you guys are going to be right there. You're going to grab me by the shoulder straps. Of course, hopefully my waist strap is done and lift me up out of that hole, you know. So I think that's how it goes more times than not in real life. Yeah, that, that's uh, 
That's great, Larry. I, I actually wanted to, to say something speaking to the waist straps. I went to Andrew Fredericks a couple years back and someone told that story and I had to reread it and listen to you tell it. Um, someone talked about it. Someone, I don't remember who it was, one of the instructors was, was really adamant about, hey, wear your race straps. And for a while, I'm sure I'm like most guys, especially when you get on the job and you're young and cool and you don't want to wear them. Um, that right. struck, a chord, struck a chord with me uh, for sure because someone referenced that call. I remember them saying it was a member on the second floor. They went to grab him, thank God. And they said the Chicago Fire Department, um, you know, he had his, had his gear on correctly that day. Um, so I, as you're retelling it, I, I'm rethinking the time I spent at uh, training days and they were talking about it. I've passed that along too. Um, you know, I'm not going to lie. There's a couple days. Sometimes I don't think about it. You go running down the street and you come out and someone says, Hey man, why is that undone? Oh shit. Yeah. You know, I forgot it happens. Um, but I can say that incident definitely had an effect, uh, ripple through the fire service. I know a lot of guys that day, um, you know, went, yeah, maybe we need to need to tighten up. Um, I think, uh, I think we're hitting, uh, all we kind of plan on hitting today. Uh, definitely want to appreciate, uh, your time. Um, thank you for coming out and sharing all your experience and knowledge. Um, Grant and I have just been jotting down questions back and forth. Um, definitely want to have you on again. Is there, uh, where are you, are you going to be teaching anywhere in the upcoming? You're going to be at FDIC this year? Yeah, I'll be down at uh, FDIC this year helping out, and um, I believe I'm on furlough, so I get to stay uh, for some classes this time, Grant, which would be nice, and uh, catch up with everybody. So, yeah, I'll be in Indy, um, and then outside of that, uh, I do uh, a little bit for, um, you know, in, in the metropolitan area here in uh, in and around Chicago, so mm -hmm. um, I'm real lucky to, again, um, have been around some of the absolute best in the business that, that honestly guys, nobody will ever hear of. I mean, legends in their particular jobs, Chicago, New York, whatever, uh, Oakland, I've been around the best, but you know, they don't go out and teach and stuff like that. So I, I just feel like, you know, the fire service saved me from a life of, uh, breaking my back and, uh, having, been lucky enough to be around some of these guys I just feel like I I owe something and uh you know uh you know I I appreciate the opportunity to help out and anytime you guys need a hand with anything at all please uh feel free to reach out and you know I'll do whatever I I'll do the best I can that's all I can promise yeah I think uh I think we'll be adding you to speed dial for sure uh -huh. just based on our conversation today I've been blessed and I feel I owe, uh, you know, I owe. So um, whatever I can do to pay it back, um, I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, we appreciate you. Anything else you want to share before we wrap up? Uh, no, I would just say um, just, uh, you know, the members, um, you can't, you know, you can't, can't always be safe, but you can be smart. And, and one way to begin to do that, and again, not to, again, I guess it's probably the third time bringing it up, but you have to understand building construction. And if you don't um, grab that old uh, guy, uh, the senior man who uh, is probably a grumpy old bastard, um, but uh, he probably builds garages or hangs doors or does windows, does fascia and siding, maybe he's a roofer, whatever he does. The guy who pulls up in the parking lot every third or fourth day and he's got the work van, go work for him for a summer 
get your hands on the tools, get acclimated to using tools and saws and stuff like that. Understand if you, I can only speak for what I do. And I told Grant the other day in the past, I don't know, maybe, geez, maybe 15 years. I've probably only let out a hand, maybe, maybe a handful of times, probably less, but I have a, a decent understanding of, of all the support stuff. So, um, if you get an opportunity, go work for a summer, build uh, garages, build homes, do remodeling, do kitchen spats, get your hands on tools under, if you understand how buildings are put together, you can, you have a better understanding how you to take them apart. And, and that way you don't have to mongo everything and work harder than you need to. So, um, I guess that's it, you know, keep your head on a swivel and, uh, you know, like, like they say, we'll see you on the fire floor. Yeah. Well said. Um, I think we have our, our part two lined up. I think we'll hit on building construction next time we have you on. So, um, yeah, we can't say enough. We really appreciate your time. Uh, we appreciate the folks listening, uh, until next time, this is Andrew Grant and, uh, Larry.